Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, Mark Hamilton, an Old Testament scholar, discusses the scriptures for the sixth week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this series of podcasts on Preaching in Season. This is the discussion for the sixth Sunday after Easter in the year C or 2022. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we will live in such a way that those who know us will call us your servant and his, and the servant of all whom we encounter. Amen. The text we will encounter this week tell us something about being a servant of God, but they bring up a number of other themes. The texts for this week are Acts 16, 16 to 34, Psalm 97, Revelation 22, 12 through 14, 16 through 17, and 20 through 21, and John 17, 20 through 26. And I'll begin with the psalm text, Psalm 97. This psalm is one of a, a series of psalms in the 90s, in the so-called fourth book of the Psalter, which commemorate uh, the kingship of God, or perhaps enact the kingship of God, would be a better way to say it. They help the people of Israel, presumably in the temple, celebrate uh, the fact that God is their king, and that though they may be subject to other kings uh, outside their own boundaries, nevertheless, uh, they have found the one who is the king of all things. The, the scene of the psalm is not just on earth or even in the temple, it is in the heavenly throne room. The Lord is king, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. The psalm has, as, as we saw last week and, and, and in other weeks, this kind of universal perspective, the sense that God is king over all things and that all who hear that announcement should celebrate that fact. They need not be subject to other gods, to false gods, uh, or even to, uh, to human beings, that they are subject to the one who is on their side. And therefore they celebrate. In the throne room, we have this contrast of, of darkness in verse 2 and fire in verse 3, light and darkness, uh, an intense experience in the presence of God in which the majesty of God becomes very clear to all, to, to those present in that room and to those of us hearing about it in this psalm. Uh, but notice also in verse 2 the lines, righteousness and judgment, justice, are the foundation of his throne. That God, God's power is, is a power exercised in the direction of justice. This, I think, is a, a very important topic for us to pick up, and it deserves far more attention than we can give it in the next couple of minutes. But I sometimes worry that when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the power of God, and we evoke those that, that kind of language, we forget or simply don't know uh, the way that the Bible actually talks about this. 
that there is no sovereignty of God without justice and without mercy, that God's power is manifested in mercy. Uh, or in, in the Christian story, God's power is made certain in weakness. We see it at the cross. But in the psalm, we see it in God's just and fair treatment of, of human beings. Um, and so the, um, the verse says that tzedek uh, umishpat are the foundations of God's throne. Righteousness, loyalty, justice perhaps. And, uh, and, and judgment, the act of fair decision and the act of defending the vulnerable, those are the foundations of God's throne, not just raw, naked power. Uh, so that, that's an important theme. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, all the peoples behold his glory. Verse 6, this, this in, inclusion of the high and the low, the, the exalted and the much less exalted. Uh, a contrast, verse 7, with idolatry. Why would you worship a God that either doesn't exist or if it does exist is unjust? Why would you do that? Uh, and then uh, verse 8, Zion hears. So the nations hear, the world hears and rejoices, and also Zion hears and rejoices. So the old theme in the Psalms about like in Psalm 2, where the, the, the foreign kings rejoice because they're about to invade and they, they think that they're going to defeat and destroy uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, gives way to a new vision in which both the people in Jerusalem and the people outside it can celebrate. There is no either or anymore. Or, as Ephesians might say, the middle wall of partition is broken down. Right? There is that that sense that the division between insiders and outsiders is, is, is no longer a threatening division if it exists at all. And then verse 10, uh, the Lord loves those who hate evil. There's an ethical dimension to Yahweh's kingship. Again, it's not just about raw naked power. It's about mercy and grace toward the vulnerable especially. Now, that theme also shows up in the, the, the second text I want to talk about, which is uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Last week, we saw Paul and Silas and their, their crowd in, um, in Philippi. And here we have them still in Philippi, but in, in the previous bit, they met a very righteous person, a holy person, named Lydia, and they hoped her on her path toward God. Uh, now they meet someone who is, who is possessed by a demon. Uh, the text says that uh, they, they meet this girl. They're going through the marketplace. They're going, wandering, minding their own business. And they're followed by this girl who has a python, uh, a spirit associated with the god Apollo. Uh, Apollo you know, had many attributes, but one thing Apollo did was reveal the future to people, especially at the Oracle at Delphi, which was very famous, and by the time Paul came around, very old oracle. Uh, and so to have this ability to speak from the divine realm into the human realm, 
was something this young girl apparently had. However, uh, she was not exalted and honored, but she was exploited. Um, she had owners who um, took advantage, used her abilities uh, to make money. And uh, this poor child, and Paul and Silas heal her. They cast out the demon and they, they banish it. And this exorcism, which should have caused, caused rejoicing in everybody, instead causes consternation and division because, after all, people are losing their money. And it's interesting here what we get in this text in uh, Acts 16, 20 to 21. We get this uh, the response that these these terrible business people engage in. They, 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 they play the race card, if you will. They, they say... Um, in verse 20, these men are, they, they, they take Paul and the rest in front of the magistrates of the city, Paul and Silas, and they say, uh, uh, these men are disturbing our city. So accusation, they're troublemakers. Uh, second accusation, they are Jews, which apparently in this setting needs no explanation. They're by definition troublemakers. So they play the anti-Semitic card, if you will. And, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. So they play the insider-outsider card. And apparently these three cards are really uh, uh, three aces. And so they get, they get Paul and Silas arrested and uh, disciplined by the city government. I, I'm, it's instructive because in the Acts of the Apostles, when the Apostles meet their fellow Jews, they can be persecuted for having a different theology, and when they meet Gentiles, they can be persecuted for being Jews. Uh, well, in a sense, the accusations are true. They are Jews. They are disturbing the city, in a way. Uh, but the gospel, uh, the, the book, wants to say that they're, they're not actually advocating unlawful customs. Quite to the contrary, the customs they are advocating will make Romans better, not worse. Of course, here the the appeal is of these these business people is, is of course utterly dishonest, because um, they're not really arguing with Paul and Silas about theology or about uh, social custom. They're they're arguing about money. Uh, and they use the prejudices of the crowd and the end of the magistrates against uh, against the apostles because they healed this poor little, poor girl. There's something about that story that rings so true. I mean, not only the long history of Christian anti-Semitism and and non-Christian anti-Semitism, which unfortunately is still alive and flourishing in certain places, and on the political spectrum on both the left and the right. Curiously, it has a long and complicated history. But, but just general uh, willingness to vilify other people because of their ethnic or racial aff affiliations, that, that whole nastiness that we see in the world around us, we see also in this text. Now, this text then takes this turn that most of us know about. They're thrown in jail, 
in the middle of the night. They're singing uh, to God because that's what you do when you're an apostle and you're thrown in jail. You might as well do something. So singing and praising God is, is better than most things you could do. And, and there's an earthquake, and the earthquake uh, destroys the prison and makes it possible for the prisoners to escape. Uh, the jailer says, the jailer panics, maybe he's lost his prisoners, maybe he needs to make sure they don't get away. And, uh, and then Paul says, don't worry about it, we're still here. We haven't left. So that's an interesting thing. The, the man who is in chains is actually the freest person in the room. And he says to the jailer, who, though he is free, is not free at all, uh, what you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus. And so they, they, they bring this person, this Gentile, uh, this man with this extremely undesirable job, into the fold of the faith. So in this chapter, they will convert a very pious person, and a person who, as far as we know, is not particularly pious, but is at least willing to listen. And that in itself is interesting that Luke wants to say the gospel, the gospel takes various paths into the lives of people uh, because people are on various paths. And, and yet uh, there is a road for everybody. And that that's, I find instructive and interesting. The third text is is really about where the road goes, and that is the end of the book of Revelation. We've been reading texts through this season from Easter to Pentecost about Revelation because, I, I think, because Easter and Pentecost are also about, about many things, but they're also about the final resolution of all things. They're eschatological moments. There's Easter is the foretaste of the final resurrection, and Pentecost is the the announcement of the final resurrection, and so so there's a an, so it's very appropriate that we should keep hearing from Revelation. So Revelation again is addressed to these Christians in the Roman Empire and saying to them, "Look, don't 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 think that Rome is the end all and be all of all things. It isn't." Uh, this empire that seems so mighty, that wants to assimilate you and make you live according to its rules, um, doesn't win in the end. It's not as mighty as it looks. It's much more fragile than it looks. And in replacement of that empire comes the heavenly city, chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, uh, further description of the heavenly city and also uh, about what happens in it. Now, the lectionary actually skips some verses that it thinks are unpleasant um, because in Revelation there are, in, there are still some outsiders. Uh, the heavenly city does not bring inside it terrible behaviors. But of course, nobody has to engage in those behaviors. You can get rid of them. It includes all nations and tongues and people, but based on their behaviors in part uh, and their willingness to, to follow the, the, the ways of Jesus Christ, the, the path to God. So 
so Revelation gives us, toward its end, uh, these words. It, it's very interesting, the last bit of the book, 22, beginning of verse 8, actually a little before the lectionary reading, uh, where we get the final conversation between John and his guide. He's had a guide who's walked him through heaven and shown him things and asked him questions, much as we see in Daniel and Ezekiel, and, and then much later in something like uh, Dante's trilogy of uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. But here we, here we have in Revelation this, this final conversation. Uh, John is so overawed by it all that he starts bowing down to the guide. And the guide says, hey, hey man, wait a minute, I'm just a servant. He's an angel. He's an obviously a very important servant. He says, I'm just a servant. And he keeps talking a while, but then there's this moment somewhere in here, and, and this, I think, commentators debate exactly where this happens, but somewhere in here, it's no longer the messenger speaking, it's, it's, it's Jesus speaking, who announces himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and, then, and, and says, I'm coming soon. Don't worry, John. The, the tragedies that you're seeing in the world around you are not the last scene in the story. Don't worry. I'm coming soon. And when I come soon, we're going to sort all this out. And uh, there will be positive things happening. And then he, he ends by this invitation, uh, which reminds us of a number of texts, including a text like Isaiah 55, 1, Come everyone who thirsts. Come drink of the water free, eat, eat and drink without money, without price. Uh, and here we just have the Spirit and the Bride saying, come. We're being invited to the heavenly wedding feast, the banquet of the Lamb. And we're being invited as honored guests. Come on, bring it, come. Come to the water of life, and instead of bringing a gift to the wedding, come and get a gift at the wedding. Drink the water of life. Live. Embrace it. And then the book ends with this uh, statement about don't add or subtract. Let, let the vision stand on its own. And, uh, and know, that, know that the coming of the Lord is going to be very good news. And it's going to be soon. Now, that coming and that soonness are things we still wait for. And in the meantime, we must live in expectation that, that the promises are going to be fulfilled really in ways that perhaps we can't quite explain or know fully about. But we'll get there. Uh, and that, and, and, and in the meantime, as we wait, we have to figure out how to do the waiting. And that, I think, is the theme of our final text, John 17, 20 through 26. It's this very moving prayer that Jesus has. You know, I, I suppose if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you hear Jesus praying for you, wishing things for you. You take those things as commands, even though they're not stated exactly as commands. You see them as non-optional. 
this is, uh, this is the way life has to be. He prays to the Father for the unity of his followers. And as I talked about last time, you're seeing John, the Gospel of John, leaning forward from the life of Jesus into the life of the church. Uh, and, and that's very clear in chapter 17, as Jesus leans forward into the life of the disciples who will be reading this book. Uh, in the first instance, and of course, subsequently, including us eventually, but he's leaning forward into this, this community and saying to it, I want you to find unity. He doesn't, he doesn't spell out all the rules, you know. He doesn't say, uh, I, uh, I know that there are circumstances when unity is not possible because to be at peace with someone means to throw the gospel overboard and uh, he doesn't really explore that option much not in this prayer though he does elsewhere in the gospel of john he knows that that's a possibility that unity has to be worked for and it does not come at the at the price of throwing away the, the core of the gospel itself so there, there are the dangers of conflict avoidance for its own sake that we all know about. But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, you know, let's, let's talk about the basic goal, the desire, the longing of Jesus for his followers, according to John. And that is that we should be unified, that we should love one another and be one with one another. I think many of us find that quite difficult. Uh, we find it difficult because not everybody's easy to get along with. Not everybody's as nice as we are. But, and not all Christians are as wise as we are, we say sarcastically. But there is that, that sense here that um, Jesus prays for these people. If Jesus is praying for you and praying for me, it might be nice if you and I found some way to get along. If he's praying for both of us and includes both of us in the circle of concern, then we should probably try to find ways to overcome our differences and to, to work through them, to be reconciled to one another, uh, to avoid the many ways in which Christians have found uh, to create schism. Uh, the church has, of course, as I say, found many ways to do this. Sometimes the doctrinal disputes really are serious and really are important, and, and we can't easily just surrender them. But, but oftentimes that isn't the case. And even when it is the case, sometimes working hard to work through them is itself an important exercise, even if we don't come to total agreement, that we may at times learn to live with difference as well as seeking unity. And we, and in the dialogue with each other, in the, in the give and take of worship, of theological discussion, of service, uh, we learn to be one somehow. This is Jesus's prayer. It has not yet been fully answered. Uh, and, and so we ourselves have 
something to do so that it can be. Jesus says, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That is the vision. Everything else is subordinate to it. And so as we hear this text and the other three for this week, let us press ahead to that vision. Thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.